Hi, dear listener. Zach here. I'm proud of the work we did on Call of Discovery and Keyforge Public Radio, and last year I took my love of podcasts full-time with my company, Rooster High Productions. If you know someone with a business who wants to broadcast their expertise through podcasts and derived social media marketing, send them my way to Zach at RoosterHigh.com. Thank you so much. Welcome to Call of Discovery, the podcast where we invite you on a journey into the Crucible for a weekly or fortnightly celebration of all things Keyforge, its community, and the excitement of Discovery. Yes, it's right there in the name. I am your co-host, Zach Armstrong, along with, as always, my friend from across the wide sea, upon which is from rising from its depths some dark tidings, I do think, Ed Pocock. How are you, Ed? Hello, hello, Zach. I am well. I am well. I haven't been. Uh, I haven't been attacked by by any of the dark tidings yet. Hmm. Hmm. Yes, those evil twins are stalking us. But so far, so far, we've kept them at bay. But um, I think they're slightly more powerful versions of us. So uh, keep an eye out for them because they might just be better at this whole podcasting than we are. There's something in the shadows somewhere. Somewhere in the shadows. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, yes, unfathomable possibilities, indeed, indeed. But today we are joined by one George Kegel. We are very excited to have you on, George. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Hello. Of course. Yes, well, we are excited you're here. And with George today, we are going to be talking about the topic of the battle line in Keyforge, this mechanic of how you place your creatures. Uh, how do you do it? Why does it matter? When does it matter? And all of these sorts of things around this uh, really baseline and great mechanic. But of course, here on Call of Discovery, before we dive into our topic with our guest, we'd like to get to know them a little bit better. So uh, to kick things off, George, how did you uh, start playing Keyforge? So I found out about Keyforge from a friend who uh, was able to attend Gen Con one of the years that I was not able to. So I actually missed the like the early launch there. But um, he was texting me, like telling me about this card game um, and how every deck is unique and you can't build decks and all these things. He was just like texting me while they were releasing it or whatever he was saying. Um, and I was just like, how? How does that work? Like, what are the how do you not cheat? How do you like just all these questions? It was blowing my mind at the time. Um, so ever since he put that on my radar, uh, I was waiting for it to come out. And then as soon as it came out, I was at the pre-releases. I was diving in immediately and just fell in love with it. That's awesome. And so it sounds, uh, you mentioned, it sounds like you've have a uh, history of Gen Con attendance. So you've been into, uh, other card games or at least other tabletop stuff before this, it sounds like. I have, um, my, my first Gen Con was, I don't remember how many years ago. But recent, like I haven't actually gone that many times. Um, sure, it, sure. Might, it might have even been 2014, 2015. And I've missed a couple in that time, like uh, buy a house, you know, and then you all your money goes into that. You can't really afford to spend the money to go to Gen Con, that type of thing. But 
um ever since then i'm a lifer like i'll go every year i can unless there's something big um that would prevent me from going and i think i it's can't actually... think of anything big that you know is going on this year or maybe last year that might <laughs> yeah. prevent people from going to large <laughs> events but outside yeah, of that sense. i mean stuff like <laughs> weddings or house buying right. or like something mandatory even with um even with our wedding that um we had a wedding in last August, which is the smallest possible wedding we can do. But we were planning on the wedding in August and also going to Gen Con at the beginning of August because the wedding was at the end of August. And uh, we saved up enough money now. So then when when they do open back up, we'll probably do both. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That classic question of, hmm, do I buy, purchase a house or do I go to Gen Con? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, a tough question for me. I don't blame people for whatever decision they make there, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, but I can. Uh, I had a similar experience when I first learned about the core concept of Keyforge. I was reading the article they published probably right after that in-flight report where they announced it, and I, I had to read the article two or three times to actually understand exactly what they were saying because it was such a paradigm shift. It was just so wacky and out there before I before I finally dove into it. Additionally, I'm in um, I'm in the corrugated industry, which has a lot of similarities with how games like um, Magic are produced, where you have like your print plates, your cutting dies, and you just run thousands and ah. thousands and thousands at the same time on large machinery. Yeah. Um, and so I was just like, how are they making that? How are they printing that? But I guess digital printing is just way past the point where I thought it was. Yeah, I do remember... Uh... I do remember Richard Garfield talking about having to kind of wait to really start proposing Keyforge to people until the technology caught up with them. And I remember hearing somewhere that at least in the early days, uh, they would literally send someone with a hard drive on a plane to to the the printing factory with all the decks that they would be that they would be printing, which um, would probably be just terabytes upon terabytes of of image files. I would assume. <laughs> yeah, even like. What am I trying to say? How how do they sell a pack for $10 after you have right? 36 printed cards with the box and everything that like goes into that? $10 is a steal for a Keyforge deck, I think. Yeah, I think that was uh, one of the things that really helped it work right off the bat was a unique deck for $10. Even just there's something about the kind of emotional philosophical end of that. Like you can own something nobody else in the world owns for $10. Yep. There's a, uh, you know, I mean, and then we people like us often end up with many, many decks, but it's still it's still something special. You know, just one ten dollar deck. George, we would be uh, remiss if we didn't mention uh, you happen to be in a particular group of people uh, who have won two vault tours. Isn't that right? Yes, I think uh, I think that was the first. Yeah. And which two vault tours were those? Uh, I won vault tour Adepticon um, in twenty nineteen and then. Uh, Collinsville, which was later the same year. I did go to Fort Worth in um, February, but that wasn't, I didn't win that one. So how did this go then? You you discovered Keyforge uh, and then you went from that to your first Vault Tour win. What was, what was the process between, you know, how did you really fall in love with the game and did you really target a Vault Tour victory or did it just come about as, as a result of the, uh, the the love you have for the game um a little bit of both so 
the game first came out and I was trying to go to sealed events and play in stores and get the community really going in Chicago. Um, helping people with chain bounds. Cause if you remember when those first came out, like the gem software wasn't reporting properly and people weren't getting their records and stuff like that. So I was going to all the different stores trying to hype the game up. Uh, and during that time, I figured that my Archon deck gasoline Maximiliano that I won with uh, was just very strong. And this was still when lands was still a combo. Um, and so I'm a longtime magic player as well. And I kind of had the choice between going to Adepticon or going down to St. Louis and playing in a magic tournament down there. And with gas max being as strong as it was, I was like, I really think I could take down this tournament. I should probably go to the one where I feel like my chances are way higher and like support Keyforge at the time as well. It was, this was still very early 2019. So that this was Coda was the only uh, set out yet. Um, so there's a little bit of targeting with that. And then after that, I practiced as much as possible. I tried to find my other three decks because, or two decks, because that was a um, survival tournament. And I basically focused on Adepticon, the, the Adepticon event and playing online and playing in person as much as possible, trying out all my different decks to get the strongest lineup that I believed I could have. And it worked. Yeah, yeah, evidently. And you mentioned uh, you mentioned lands, and I does Gas Max have bait and switch as well? No, Gas Max is just lands. Yeah, it's Logos Untamed Dis. Ah, oh, that's right. So the combo right. at the time was draw the whole deck, and then you use Control the Weak and Restring Guntus to lock out the opponent um, with Phase Shift, and then you just loop it every turn. Ah, gotcha. Gotcha. That that makes sense. So for uh, if anyone wasn't deep into to Coda at the time, you're unfamiliar with that. That's library access, Nepenthseed, uh, library access, letting you draw a card after you play a card. Nep- Nepenthseed, the artifact that lets you pull it back out of your discard pile. Um, and then uh, just think of the times you've been most uncomfortable in your life. And that's what Control the Weak and Restoring Guntus do to you while you're playing Keyforge. <laughs> True. And that was uh, that was my focus on that tournament was that um, I'm one of my strengths as a player is those types of mechanics and lockout effects. Mm, and mm-hmm. so my three uh, survival decks all featured Restring Guntus in them, along with this, obviously, um, maybe not obviously because Mavericks, but that was my focus on the event, using those abilities to lock out my opponents. Um something that was probably it was still on the radar i don't want to say it was over like overlooked at the time but i don't think it was as big as it is now at the time sure sure uh and then so famously sometime after this right library access got an errata uh which purges it after play so you can't recur it like you did before and uh i'm not looking at my notes but that made gas max totally useless right you never won anything after that (laughs) uh (laughs) Nope. I kept playing the deck. I still liked the Control the Weak and um, Restring Guntus Lockouts. And Library Access is still a very strong card. You can have insane turns with it. So um, with the other two decks, well, I never played the third deck, but with my other deck performing well, I kept practicing that deck. And it was still one of my strongest decks. 
and with that i took it to collinsville because st louis is um pretty close to chicago it's drive away and my wife has family down there so it's very easy for me to attend tournaments down in that area so kept practicing with the same deck and then went and took down another one with it Yes, I, I remember that going around mentioning that uh, you had won, going around in the community, the news that uh, uh, the same deck had won two, two Vault Tours uh, and after the Arata as well, which was just so fun and impressive. And something that's really indicative of Keyforge that came out of that story is you see a deck win and you go, oh man, I wonder if I have a deck like that. Or, you know, is there a deck for sale like that? Because that deck has had success. And as soon as you're typing into decks of Keyforge, you're like, okay, well, Gas Max has X, Y, Z. Um, you get to a point where you're like, nope, this really is a unique deck game. There might be other decks that can achieve lockout style plays. Um, but just by searching your opening decks, you're not going to find, you know, you're not going to find something that works like Gas Max does. It really is a unique deck game in that way. And then the next step, the super fun step, is going, well, I don't have anything like it, but. What do I have in my collection that could cause a deck like that problems? And uh, and then taking that <laughs> to a tournament. I, I have a story about that, actually. So uh, in Chicago, we have our like our locals that we play with. And I have my friends that I made through Keyforge and stuff like that. And in testing with a couple of my friends, they have a deck that completely wrecked Gas Max. Like, I think I went like 0-6 in a row. Um, and it helps that they're great players too, but like, I was just, uh, I don't know how I beat this deck. So then in my head, I was like, if that deck can beat my deck, then that deck has to be the better deck. Right. That's, that's, I think a lot mm. of people thing to think. And so right. they actually let me borrow it and I took it to the Gen Con Archon event. And like, that's still my only event that I didn't day two because I just went what well, i think wow. it was to drop yeah but part yeah. of it's like i didn't play that deck enough i didn't have enough time to practice with it but every deck has its own set of unique weaknesses as well um and that deck just happened to like find the achilles heel of gas max and just like hammer on it so hard but then that deck has its own weaknesses right um and it turns out that they're more common than uh the weakness that gas max has sure sure yeah i think that's a great illustration of kind of two lessons of of keyforge is that one keyforge is a uh in a very important way a game of matchups you know that won't exclusively determine who wins uh you know who wins a thing but some you know a deck like gas max can have like you said an achilles heel that a you know medium good deck may be able to just take it apart while that deck might not you know do better than gas max Yep. generally um and then also your point you know saying you took that deck and you hadn't you know practiced it as much as you had gas max just getting to know a deck can give you uh much more of an edge than than you would have otherwise just through repetition and seeing it in all possible situations absolutely and the funny thing is is that that style of deck because every deck is unique but there are you can get a deck that has a similar idea or a similar game plan um, and the first round that I went at Gen Con was almost a mirror match where part of it is like we had um, mothers, which lets you draw. It increases your hand size by one. So you draw up to seven card. And then uh, 
what is it, the Howling Pit, which does the same thing, but it's an artifact. So this particular deck had, I think, three or four of these effects. And then my opponent also had three or four of these effects. So during our game, our hand size was bouncing from like 10 to 12. And we're just playing these massive turns back and forth. But like, wow, it was a long grindier game than it sounds like because we had all of the threats and all of the answers and all like everything all the time. Um, but that was wonder, also fun and interesting. And you're not going to have those types of interactions that often in this game. I wonder if when playtesting Keyforge before it came out, the design team did a similar thing and tested the game with let's allow everyone to have 10 to 12 cards in hand at a time and see what <laughs> madness ensues. I do remember from some of Danny's stories when he was on that they will often make a card just totally ridiculous and try it out, see what happens, and then walk it back from there. Like the original version of lateral shift being swap hands with your opponent. Um, I love wow. that. I love yeah. that. Yeah, which which he said was uh, an interesting idea to try, but it was pretty immediately unfun. So here's to the Keyforge onset. <laughs> One day. So, uh, George, before we dive into our, our focus topic, what would you say, if you have one, is the most memorable thing that's happened to you connected with Keyforge? Oh, wow. Um, the Vault Tour wins have to be up there, right? So the, the the two wins are definitely high up there. And then using my first win to go to the UK and the uh, the UK Games Expo, which was actually my first time leaving the country, um, traveling really anywhere, like I had to get my passport. Um, that was a fantastic experience that I probably only would have gotten through this game. We might have met there. We might have met. Who knows? I, just, I met like... It was a huge event. I met tons of people, uh, lots of great memories from it. So it's very possible. Roll on UK Games Expo 2021 or two. Well, yeah, it'll be soon. It'll be soon. And that is one of the great things about the game, isn't it? You get to meet people in different places. I'm still excited to go to the US for a vault tour sometime soon. Sometime soon. It will happen. Yes, at some point. At some point. I can't wait. I'm, I'm, I'm chomping at the bit to go to in-person events again. <laughs> but when it's safe, when it's safe. Yes. Yeah, I, I think I think all of us are. My goodness, I think all of us are. So uh, without further ado, we're going to jump into our topic today, uh, which we uh, talked with uh, George about before coming on, and it's going to be the battle line in Keyforge. So uh, I assume most of our listeners will be familiar with the battle line. You've probably played Keyforge a couple times, uh, either a lot or maybe just a few times if you're listening. But as a basic recap, the battle line is you you place your creatures in a line as you play them in, in Keyforge. And typically you will play them on either flank. And so your creatures have neighbors to each other. There are effects that, uh, uh, you know, there are effects that, uh, focus on flank or non-flank creatures, neighbors of creatures in all sorts of ways. So uh, we're going to dive into this topic uh, a bit with George today, just about uh, how it's dynamic, what things do we consider when we're looking at the battle line, when we're building a battle line, uh, mostly dependent on uh, what kind of cards are in our deck that are going to interact with the battle line. Now, I will have to say I'm not trained enough on card games, 
to know how many other games have had a battle line uh, really be important in this way. But I definitely appreciate it as, um, you know, a little bit of uh, an, a little extra layer of strategy inside of Keyforge to have neighbors to have neighbors matter, especially as we've gotten more sets and that positioning has mattered more and more. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, Runeterra does a little bit with kind of like the left to right attackers thing, but it's not so much mm. your board state left to right matters as much. Um, Keyforge... I don't know. Again, it's unique. I've played a lot of card games, but I don't know if that aspect of it is unique, but it's certainly, I feel more important than a lot of players realize at first. And that's kind of what I wanted to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. So in what ways does it kind of become more important or when does it become more important than, than one might assume? I know in Call of the Archons, I was just kind of playing things. The only thing I was worried about was taunt in Call of the Archons. So what makes it more important than just, uh, you know, I got to get this whole house out of my hand. <laughs> well that, that's the first level of it you have your uh your taunt effects you have things like deploy you have uh like titan mechanic which is if it's on a flank then your keys cost less well, one less uh valder which can attack things on flank um so i really think the most obvious thing that players see when thinking about the battle line matters is the cards that directly call it out like the pain packas um, and your taunt and your deploy effects. So part of that is not just recognizing those cards, but then also recognizing which cards you would want to put next to those cards. So the taunt is probably the big, most obvious one, right? You want to put your taunt guy um, next to your, maybe your vulnerable creature so that they can be protected by the taunt effect and can't be directly attacked as much. So, George, what kind of uh, what kind of cards in your deck uh, make that battle line placement matter? We talked about taunt, kind of an entry level one, but what are some other effects on maybe some particular creatures or cards that make battle line placement uh, actually important that that come to mind when you think about all this? So, when I think about it, I'm typically actually thinking about my opponent's cards more than my own cards. Um, there are, I think, newer effects like. Excuse me, I don't remember the name. There's an untamed card in Mass Mutation that's kind of like Positron Bolt, but it puts plus one counters where it does three, two, one from a flank. Mm, growth Surge. Growth Surge. So that's the type of thing that you can put your smaller creatures on a flank and then beef them up pretty quickly. Otherwise, I'm thinking like, does my opponent have a booby trap or um the untamed card they're everywhere which does two to the flank and one to everything else and typically i'm organizing my battle line defensively to make my opponent use their cards less efficiently if they want to remove my troublesome creatures um your your restoring guntus is something you really want to protect and where it is in your battle line can matter quite a big deal whether or not it gets actually removed yeah, yeah, that's a good point about make protecting the creatures you need to protect by knowing how the threats from your opponent's deck work. One of my favorites in that category of offensive cards to watch out for and build your battle line around if you can is uh, the uh, the the um, I'm tempted to say the only good uh, Brobnar card in Worlds Collide, Berserker Slam, that deals four damage to a creature. If it kills it, that the controller of that creature loses an amber and it gives you an amber, so it's a nice little two amber swing with a four damage to a flank. And so um, 
if you're really conscious and you have the right creatures, you can try to avoid the situation where the Berserker Slam really gets a full value. Absolutely. Sorry, go ahead. The only good card. The only good (laughs) Grobnar card. I said I hesitate to say this, but I I will admit I did still say it. What about my boy Meganarp? (laughs) Uh, Meganarp is just so handsome and great at dinner conversation. However, as a card, I mean, I mean, he's fine. He's well, fine. If you if you turn him up the other way around and reverse him, then he's <laughs> <laughs> your his neighbors can only reap. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that that brings up a good point though, is that you can um one of the topics I wanted to touch on is that you can affect your opponent's delta and essentially change their plays on their turn by altering their battle lines. And Meganarp is a great example. If anyone is actually playing a Mega a Meganarp. Sure. <laughs> I feel like nobody likes them. But if your opponent has creatures that give a big reap bonus, like maybe it's reap steal one or reap capture one or something like that, you can take out the creatures in the middle and get that creature next to Meganarp. Um, which might actually change their game plan, especially if you're on check or something else. They have to do something different. Or maybe they have to kill their own Meganarp somehow. Yeah, killing one's own Meganarp is a bit of a a bit of a task. A bit of a task. <laughs> uh, and you mentioned, and I think defining this term is going to be really good for this discussion, but you mentioned the, the Delta there, which I know I first heard on uh, the bouncing, now archived uh, bouncing Death Quark. So what, what do you mean by Delta in respect to like Battle Lines and Amber? So Delta is typically how much Amber can your opponent or yourself produce in a given turn. Um, and they often use the example where if your opponent has three creatures of the same house, they can make three Amber. But if they have three creatures and they're all different houses, they can only make one Amber. Um, and the common, the first thing a lot of players learn is, you know, cards in hand plus abilities on the board. And by adjusting the opponent's battle line, you can change that number to where maybe they don't have as much on the board now. So they actually, their cards plus board might be a different house and that might benefit you in a different way. For like, the obvious one is shadows, right? You don't want your opponent to call shadows on a specific given turn. So like, what's a Gamgee? If they have a Gamgee and a NARP, and you are able to kill the thing in between the Gamgee and the Narp. If they call Shadows, they're going to be able to steal one less. Um, and that's just the example that I come off the top of my head. But every game is different. And looking at the, the battle line in that type of way might be might allow you to make stronger plays. Yeah, certainly. Certainly. And even even without a, a Mega Narp on the other side of the board, I think something you said there really still stands is that if you know there's a house that uh, they are likely to call or you don't want them to call that house because you know they have some threats there, maybe some answers that they might play, you can disincentivize playing that house by getting rid of creatures, even if you know they're going to call that house. Maybe you focus on taking out creatures of that house so that they have uh, fewer resources. Like you said, you reduce their delta uh, for when they go back into that house, or maybe they they pick another house entirely and, and skip the advantage they were going to get anyways. Exactly. And you can also use that in, I'll say, a defensive way. 
so there's a lot of um, conditional removal in Keyforge because it's all free, right? You just call a house and you play it. So I'll use the Rustring Guns example because it's the most uh, close, the closest to home for me. Um, let's say I have something with Taunt on the board and I can put a Rustring Guns next to it. I can use the extra defense of the battle line positioning to make my opponent call a even a more specific house than what I locked them out of with Restoring Guntis. So maybe my opponent has like Shadows, which has a lot of cards that are able to remove a Restoring Guntis by doing a little bit of damage or whatever and completely avoid fighting. And they have Brabnar, but they don't have as much removal in Brabnar. Maybe I saw that because it's an Archon tournament, right? So I put it next to a taunt person to where they have to call Brabnar, fight down the taunt thing first, which will take out a lot of their creatures. And then maybe they even still kill the Rustring Guntis, but it costs them a turn and a lot of their battle line to do it, putting them farther behind. Yeah, and I think that's a great way to think about the battle line as a tool, both yours and your opponents, for how how can I make them spend more resources that I'm spending to to threaten? Like, if I play this one card smartly, I can get them to take a turn, use a couple of creatures to fight instead of reap, and even if they're going to kill that Restoring Guntus, uh, maybe you're getting kind of an advantage out of that, that turn they're spending killing it that you wouldn't have gotten uh, otherwise, which I think is, uh, uh, there's a lot of smart plays in that area. Yeah, exactly. And you can use, it's not just Restoring Guntus. You can use your Pimpacas this way. Um, you can use Hazardous this way, uh, where you just set up, use your battle line left to right in your flanks to dodge your opponent's removal and force them to waste cards that are, use their cards less efficiently because it is a race. So using making their cards less efficient essentially slows them down, puts you ahead in the race. It's almost like a game within the game, uh, working out where to put things on the battle line and and whether you're making the best use of it at the time, particularly with the effects that we've had introduced, I think, in later sets. It's a, it's like a like a little puzzle within Keyforge. It is. And and, and it is a a smaller aspect that can have a big difference. Um, oftentimes in card games, it's they say it's like a game of percentages. What what choice can give you one more percent to win or two more percent to win? Um, and the battle line is often the place I see my opponents giving up free percentages because they just they mm. didn't they just slammed all their creatures down. They didn't care that they put you know, like they lined up to a positron bolt exactly to where I killed three creatures with one card, you know, versus if they would have just placed them in the opposite direction, I might only got one or two creatures. Um, so I think that's a, a great lesson to kind of have a plan, a defensive plan, right? After reading your opponent's Archon card, if you if you can, in an Archon environment. And knowing, okay, here's the threats they're going to have. You know, they've got a Bullet Eye or a Chimor Eclipse. Um you know, something like that uh, to to kind of play around. Positron Bolt is a great practical example because that does the three, two, one damage. Um, but uh, depending on your deck, you're also going to have some cards that uh, you want to kind of play to your outs. You know, if you've got a Ghost Talk or an Order of Hosario, um, you might want to set up your battle line 
for as well. Are there any of kind of your favorite cards, George, that you kind of have to set up for like in your own deck as far as a battle line order goes? There are, and we'll get into that with next week's episode, likely with the deck I want to review. But sometimes it's not as obvious, and it's the card effects that control it that even don't even say flank or non-flank or anything like that. But generally, the what am I like my favorite cards that matter? I really like the Pampacas. Anything with Taunt, I love Taunt and Hazardous uh, as defense cards. Even though I don't like Sanctum, it's uh, one of my least favorite houses. I do like some of the abilities that they give. And the last thing I wanted to maybe not, maybe not the last thing, but something I wanted to bring up was that so if you know your your cards that have the battle line matters abilities your deploys like you just said ghost hawk or uh, orator hasaro you can change your gameplay if you know your deck well enough like call the certain house to build up your battle line ahead of time to draw into your outs so that like if you have a ghost hawk and a gamgee you can do your shadows turn set it up um and then maybe they think they're free to do whatever and then you slam a ghost hawk and you reap and you steal or anything like that so i think the last level of really getting to know your deck and really getting to know your battle line is setting it up ahead of time and building the best possible board state that you can with that which also to like to bring it all together that changes if you're at an Archon event where all the sets are legal or you're at a sealed event where only a one set is legal, it benefits to learn all the cards that care about um, the battle. What was the what was the Brobnar example you said? Uh, Berserker Slam. Berserker Slam. So like if you're doing a Worlds Collide sealed event and your opponent has a like a Brobnar deck, you can't actually look at their list, but you can know they might have Berserker Slam, especially if they picked Brobnar in Worlds Collide. They might have some, you know, something up their sleeve, which might be a handful of Berserker Slams. And you can plan accordingly ahead of time before it even becomes a problem. Yeah, certainly. Certainly. Uh, One of my I'll shout out one of my favorite cards here that makes that um, really pulls together a lot of this thinking is uh, the think tanks, especially the uh, regular just group think tank that has action (laughs) deal four damage to every creature that shares a house with at least one of its neighbors. Because I've noticed with that, that if you can get out your think tank and minimize damage to your own battle line, if you manage to clear your opponent's battle line, all of a sudden, if they play more than one creature in a turn, those those creatures will get hit by um, by group think tank, which I just think is uh, that card has grown on me the more I've played with it. I think that's a very difficult card to use. And you that's a great example. That is a that's a very good example of how even if you just take out the specific creatures ahead of time and then you slam that thing, they have to answer it or they're just going to have their board state wrecked every single turn. Great example. <laughs> and then, of course, we have the leaders, uh, something to be aware of both on your side of the board and your opponents. George, which of, which of the leaders do you think could be truly influential or could we see in some of those truly... Uh, Truly outstanding Archon decks. My favorite is Zenzi, 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 Zenzik. Um, Those effects have continued to be very strong. The Dis one, where you can steal your opponent's creatures, I think is also very good. But generally, I think the creatures that have an ability immediately, which Zenzi does, are tend to be the better ones. 
ancient bear has not been so great for me. And and congratulations, George, for the potentially best pronunciation of uh Zenzizenzizenzizenzix <laughs> on the podcast that we've had so far. Awesome. And uh we have uh a few questions uh from uh our, our Patreons. We got a couple of questions from SC Steel uh about the battle line. Some of these touch on touch on a few kind of concepts we've hit on earlier. Uh, and they're also very general, right? The um, we know Keyforge. Uh, the answer is often it depends, right, with your matchup. Um, but uh, one of her questions was, uh, at what delta of creatures? There's that word delta again. Uh, at what delta of creatures do you play a board wipe? Now, this is assuming, of course, you have one and maybe you're holding it for for maximum value. Um, but yeah, Georgia, what kind of delta of creatures do you, if you're holding a board wipe, do you wait for to to drop that? I think it's not a particular delta. It's whether or not you are in control of the game. Um, your opponent might only have three creatures, but if those three creatures are completely wrecking you and stopping you from doing anything, then you might just need to pull the trigger on that board wipe. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, I, I think I think that's right. There's just so many factors that um, sometimes I have held board wipes if I think my opponent is going to play some more creatures. But of course, it is that balance between what value would gave to get between between now and then as well, or or playing to the the conditions of your board wipe. Maybe you want to get some damage on your Brobnar creatures before that's playing true. a Coward's End. Yeah, I, w- I would say if it's a conditional delta, but if you think that you can't at least match because it is a race. So if you can't mm. match the Delta within the one or two next turns, then you should probably pull pull that trigger on that board wipe. That is a great thing to ask yourself. Can I match? Yeah, can I match the Delta? If not, then I go ahead and reset the board, because then we're both at probably Delta zero, you know, accepting wards and other protections and things. But yeah, that's a great that's a great way to look at it. And we talked about this before. Uh, she asks, what cards are you looking for on an opponent's deck list that affect flank, non-flank? When I'm looking at whether or not the... If I'm looking at a, an opponent's Archon's card, I'm looking for cards that um, remove flank creatures that are not creatures. So there's Valder that attacks flank creatures. That's fine. There's uh, the Sanctum... I would like the sanctum creatures always mess me up because they all sound like angels and they all have like army titles with them. Right. Uh, (laughs) I'm kind of getting sidetracked. I'm not looking for those things. I'm looking more for like the berserker slams, the, um, the booby traps, the, okay. Special delivery, uh, is the one that I'm always on the lookout for because I don't want my restaurant contest getting purged, but essentially the thing I'm always looking for is the removal that can take out your flank creatures particularly. Um, and then the opposite of that is the removal that only hits non-flank creatures like Hand of Dis is a big one. If your opponent has even multiple Hands of Dis, then you need to put your valuable creatures on the flank like maximum as possible just to do the most damage to the opponent. And then on the opposite side, the ones that I like the most are Titan Mechanics, even though... Mm. I feel like those are difficult to use sometimes. Um, Staunch Knights, the Pampacas, I like quite a bit. Um, those things can get out of control with just a heavy board controlling the game. 
And that walks very well into our final Patreon question, which is indeed on the Pan Packers. Um, everyone's favorite cards, of course. Um, and which of the Pan Packers do you think is the the biggest kill on site Pan Packer? Which one do you want to get rid of the most if your opponent brings it up? That's I was wondering if the question was going to be like, which one is better? But that's even a better way to pose that question. Yeah, yeah. I, I got to still say the, the plus two Pampeka. So mm. Pampeka Anga. <laughs> that's such a better question than what I expected. The plus two is going to make it more difficult to kill anything else. So if you're going to like have to kill one of them, it's going to be that one because then you can take out the other things you need to take out. Um skirmish is obviously going to wreck your board state but like if they have a like a plus two and then like some other kind of bonus power that that board state's going to get out of hand and then if you don't have a board wipe you're probably just going to end up losing after that pampaka anka is the answer to that one excellent excellent if anybody needs my trick for how i remember which is which uh well step one watch the entirety of avatar the last airbender um step two remember that the main character ang is powerful and step three, Panpaka Anga gives plus two power. That's, so that's my trick. <laughs> it's a good trick. It's it's awfully convoluted, but it, it works. It honestly works. Thanks so much, George, for joining us today for a chat all about the battle line on Keyforge. Um, where can people find you? Uh, I'm in the Facebook group. You can find me in there. Uh, I'm open to facebook messages if you have any questions there's a few people that drop me a line every now and then ask my opinions on decks um you can find me on decks of keyforge or on twitch or reddit or anything like that uh compacta underscore d is the screen name um and if you need to spell it you can always look on the master vault i'm hoping to maintain my place up there when we get back into online event or sorry in-person events um Feel free to drop me a line anywhere. You can find me on YouTube as well. It's just my name, George Cagle, K-E-A-G-L-E. I definitely, I need help with my content. So if you like watch a YouTube video or a Twitch stream or anything like that, or even my articles, and you have recommendations for something you'd like to see from me, let me know because uh, I definitely want to help the community and I'm not exactly sure what to be doing on that. And I'm open to criticism. So as long as it's constructive, don't just call me names. Awesome. Thanks, George. If you are enjoying Call of Discovery and you're willing and able to support us in a monetary fashion, our Patreon is linked below where you can put your own weird and wonderful decks into the spotlight and, of course, have your say on our future through our Patreon-only Discord. Let us also know what you'd like to see more of or less of in future shows please subscribe or leave a review on your regular podcast app. We really do read that stuff and we appreciate it. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, or you can of course email us at podcast at callofdiscovery.com. But most importantly though, if you think a friend would enjoy this podcast, please do help them to discover it. Have you answered the call of discovery? 